Hello and welcome to episode five of the MTG Conflicts Cast. My name's Steven and I'm joined today by John. Hey. And Zach. Hello. And before we get into our episode today, we want to apologize for our uploading error that we missed last week. We only ended up uploading half of an episode. It's up now if you want to finish the episode. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how we prepare for PPTQs and RPTQs and taking a look at some new policy and rule changes. Let's kick things off with our weekly roundup where we talk about decks that we piloted and played against this past week. John, let's start with you. I had a magically filled weekend last week. I played a modern FNM where I played Jeskai Tempo. Uh, I played uh, Harlan Friars uh, SCG Modern Open winning deck list. Ran it through a four-round modern event. Um, I enjoyed the deck quite a bit. It's all on video. I also played in pre-release on Saturday where I drafted a um, Nyasaur deck. I was pretty happy to open a Foil Watley Warrior Poet. Um, and put that to good use. I ended up going three and one at the pre-release. I ended up flooding out in two games in the same round and losing that one. Opened a Carnage Tyrant in my prize packs, which was super sweet. And then on uh, Sunday, I went to a Legacy event where I played Esper Deathblade. I was pretty pressed for time that day, so I grabbed a list from like February from Ben Friedman. I thought his list was the best that I could find in short notice, but um, I wasn't very happy with it. It didn't have death rights in it, and I really think that if you're playing Legacy right now, you should be playing death right, especially if you are in the colors that can play it. I went uh, two and two with the list and uh, managed to make top four due to low turnout and being the top of the two two seeds. Split the event at that point achieving maximum EV for what I thought was not the greatest deck list. Um, but it was a pretty pretty good weekend. Is that FNM video on YouTube now? Yeah, we've uh, we've got it up on our YouTube channel where you can check out my FNM every week. Um, you can see me play the 75-card mirror against someone else who had the same idea. It's pretty interesting. Uh, how about you, Zach? Play anything sweet? So I had an interesting week in the multiverse. I uh, was able to pick up a foreign black border tropical island and spend some money on some other cards as well. So I did a fair amount of shopping. Um, and then I stopped by a couple card shops in search of the welcome decks from the community event that took place like two weeks ago. Uh, they have the learn to play decks. And I was able to get my hands on quite a few of those. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to Great Escape Games and A1 Comics for hooking me up. Uh, I'm going to use those decks to teach some fifth graders how to play Magic. Um, and so I think it was Monday, one of my students brought uh, one of the dual decks, Mind vs. Might, to class. And after school, maybe it was at, it was at lunch. At lunch, uh, I played a little bit with that student and we I was able to walk her through a couple turns. Um so she kind of was getting the hang of it. And then the next day I had the learn to play decks. Um, so I told my class if they came at lunch, I would teach them to play. I was expecting three to four kids to show up. Um, there were 11 kids at my door knocking when they were released to go to recess. Wow. Uh, yeah. So and two of them weren't even in my class. Uh, so <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I was I was a little overwhelmed because I was just how do I teach 11 kids how to play magic all at once. Right. 
The um, same way you teach 11 kids how to do anything else. I mean, you're, you're, it's like literally your job, right? Uh, yeah, actually. So, so what I did was I, uh, the girl who had played with, uh, the mine with the dual decks, uh, the day before I had, I gave her one of the welcome decks and used the dot cam, which is a, a, a overhead camera that projects onto the, uh, to the screen we have, um, you know, onto the, onto the whiteboard. Uh, and so then I walked her through turns with that deck so everyone could watch. Um, and then today, um, it came back, you know, I guess they were interested still. So, um, I gave everyone one of the welcome to play decks and I paired them up so they could, you know, were playing against each other. Um, and I walked them through the first three turns of the game for each player. Um, everyone had cast a creature and some of them had even, you know, the red players had cast a shock. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're getting it. They're learning to tap mana and pay for spells and, you know, the, the process of setting up a game and all that. Uh, so hopefully, uh, in the next few days uh, or next week, they'll be playing on their own. Uh, and then I'm going to give them some of the learned play decks so they can play, you know, with their friends elsewhere other than at school. Um, and then uh, yesterday after school, one of the kids in my class wanted to play. Uh, so he, you know, he walks home, so I let him stay for 20 minutes, and I walked him through a game. Uh, we were able to play the whole game. I was white, he was blue. Um, the board was kind of starting to gum up, and I was thinking, oh, gosh, this is – I'm afraid this game's going to get, like, super board stall and get too confusing, and then he just top decks an air elemental and uh, <laughs> proceeded to beat my face with it uh, right on turn five. So – um, when he drew the air elemental, his, his mind was blown. He was just, you know, the art, everything. He realized it was a giant creature. And, uh, so yeah, it, it was a really good experience. And I'm thinking there's gonna be a lot of magic going along, going on at my school. So we'll see. Um, That's awesome. yeah, so we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully I get them playing, um, by themselves, you know, uh, pretty quickly here. Um, but yeah, uh, I saw some cool decks this week, um, Storm in modern, obviously you guys already know that's a thing, um, but I wanted to point it out because Storm has started playing strategic planning. It was printed, uh, it was reprinted in Hour of Devastation. It's a sorcery for one in the blue. Look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. So it's kind of like anticipate, but the cards go into your graveyard, uh, I think which is a little bit of a bonus when you're using cards like Past in Flames. They're running that as a three of, uh, but I also want to bring it up because it was printed twice before this, once in Portal. So it has a very cool art uh, with like a, a Chinese military camp. Um, and that you can get that in a modern border uh, with a black border from one of the commander sets. Uh, so I just bought some for myself and I got that one. I'm partial to the modern border um, unless I can get old border, black border, which can be hard to get on the Portal cards. Um, and then also I want to mention that Shattering Spree is in the sideboard and it's $11. Uh, so if you have those and you're not using them, maybe ship them. Um, maybe dig them out of your, uh, your bulk if you have that around. Um, so that's, you know, I just, I did not realize that card had gone up so much. Uh, and then the second deck I saw that was pretty cool is a Grixis Delver deck, uh, which is pretty, you know, par for the course, fatal push, lightning bolts, counter spells, Terminate, you know, all that. Normal creatures, Delver, Snapcaster, Delve creatures, Young Pyromancer. Um, but the reason I want to bring it up today is because it has 12 cantrips. What did you play this week, Stephen? This week I played a red affinity list that I talked about last week with Shrapnel Blast in it. Uh, I ended up severely disliking the deck. 
Um, I felt like Shrapnel Blast put me in a pigeonhole way too often, and it was not fun to pilot, in my opinion. But that's just for my playstyle. I don't like. I don't like just trying to throw damage at people's faces for no reason. Um, unless I'm winning, it just didn't. It wasn't fun for me. It wasn't. My, it wasn't my kind of deck. Also, my sideboard was really bad. Uh, I ended up playing in my fifteen. In my fifteen cards, I ended up playing seven enchantments. What? Yeah, uh, mostly like to. I, I built it more for the room, not for like a real tournament. But I had cards like Choke, Gerper, Aethergrid, Blood Moon, Rule of Law, and Rest in Peace. That just took up more than half of my sideboard. And then I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is just happening. <laughs> uh, so in the past, uh, you played a little bit of uh, of Tribal Flames, and it seemed like you liked throwing Tribal Flames at people to finish them off. Um, how did your experience with Shrapnel Blast differ that made you not like it? Sacrificing permanents, man. Yeah, okay. So a two-for-one is just not good. It wasn't technically a two-for-one two because they were trying to kill a creature, and I was sacrificing the creature they are going to kill anyways and throwing it at their face. But th I had to keep two mana up, which is yeah. just... In Affinity, it's just not ideal. Is it fair to say that instead of you just using it to finish them off or kill creatures. It was just kind of you were throwing at them when it was convenient. Yeah, exactly. So I guess that's, I, I guess that just, that's the part that I, I disliked more than anything. Man, you just, uh, you got to get the ultimate culmination of that experience and play if a deck that has goblin grenade. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. Getcha. Five um, color tribal flames, goblin grenade, shrapnel blast. Oh, yeah. Get wrecked. <laughs> Blowing people up. <laughs> Before I finish up on, on Red Affinity, I was wanted to point out that sideboarding with that deck is is ridiculous. Typically, an Affinity deck wants to have six to eight colored permanents in their, in their deck. Uh, and starting off, you're playing... Uh, Master Ethereum, Shrapnel Blast, and Galvanic Blast, and you're playing four Galvanic Blast, three Shrapnel Blast, and then um, two Master Ethereums, you're already going over your limit as far as colored spells are, are concerned, and sideboarding usually meant that you're taking some colored spells out and replacing them with other colored spells unless you're going into, unless you're replacing them for uh, more etched champions. It seemed like more often than not, I needed to have colored mana on turn one or turn two, and I just couldn't get there. Sounds like you were just playing a shell game with your colored permanents between the board and main. Exactly. Um, and then I played some pre-release where I got to play a mediocre deck, which was red-green dinosaur slash merfolk. And I got the mediocre cards from both piles, and I never saw, I didn't end up getting like any really good dinosaurs or any really good merfolk. And I just kind of got crushed because I went, uh, I won two games, two matches, and then went into like the, like the quote unquote undefeated area, and then uh, got paired against a really good merfolk deck that had insane merfolks. And then a really good dinosaur deck that had really good dinosaurs. 
did you play against the merfolk the four mana one it's green it, it like uh you have like pay and makes dudes to, yeah out of your lands oh I had my that. god that card is insane and limited i played a i played a game where me and my opponent both had one Ugh. <laughs> and so you guys just kept like oh you made a three three i'll make a three three oh the the board was just so cluttered it was awful oh um, end, of turn, end of turn i'll make a five five End of turn, I'll make a 5-5. Five, five. Uh, yeah. Crap, shit. I ran out of lands. Yeah, it was bad. I ended up playing, like, Huatli and, like, plusing her to gain a bunch of life. And then, <laughs> and then I just started, like... Because I was getting, like, chipped at by, like, a flyer during this. And then I gained a ton of life and then just started making 3-3s. Three <laughs> yeah. And then I, at some point I realized that you can stack those. That yeah. you can keep adding counters onto one creature, which isn't smart, but... You know, if you're in a top deck war, it's probably not the worst idea. Well, my opponent wasn't aware of that either, and he got blown out by it, so... Correct! <laughs> yeah. It's, like, blocked. He's like, okay. And I was like, put more counters on it? And he's, like, immediately reaches for the card. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> when they, like, lean back and they, like, jump forward to pick up the card. Yeah. It was like, yeah, that works the way you didn't think it works. <laughs> Before we before we move off of our weekly roundup, I have um I have one interesting deck that I I actually saw today online. Um, word is going around there is a legacy pirate stompy deck on the loose. Um, Saffron Olive actually offered a bounty of a signed uh, Modern Masters 2017 Blood Moon to anyone that could get him the deck list. Apparently, uh, Legacy Mastermind Bob Wong is behind the list, and it looks like Julia Nab has the deck list as well, both uh, big names in the Legacy community. So, John, what makes a Legacy Stompy deck? What is a Stompy deck? Stompy is a, uh, a macro archetype in, in Legacy that's usually uh, characterized by having access to uh, the Soul Lands, Ancient Tomb, and City of Traitors, uh, so named because of their ability to make two mana like the card Soul Ring, and paired together with very hateful lock pieces like chalice of the void and trinosphere um, since so much of the format and legacy is reliant on resolving one mana spells a chalice on one or a trinosphere really throws a kink in most decks game plans and leaves them dead in the water so john what are most legacy stompy decks like currently and what's different about this one yeah so um Stompy decks have uh, been around for a really long time, and there's a ton of different variations on Stompy. There's um, there used to be a deck called Sea Stompy, which was mono blue. There's been a mono white Soldier Stompy. There's a mono black Demon Stompy. Um, there's mono red Dragon Stompy, and the deck that's been pretty good lately is called Big Red, and it is a Stompy deck that aims to resolve on turn one or two one of the following either a chalice of the void a trinosphere a blood moon or a magus of the moon and it has the fallback also of ensnaring bridge and once it's locked you out of casting relevant spells either by chalicing or trinosphering you or uh, making it so your um, non-basic mana base is all making red mana after it's got you locked up it kills you with something like chandra torture defiance or Koth of the Hammer, or even uh, Hazard the Fervent has been seeing play lately. I think they used to play stuff like P uh, Pia and Kirin Nalar. 
Um, and so what's different about this Pirate Stompy deck, um, there's a list that I found that looks pretty close to what I expect the secret deck list as it's going around. Um, it's, it's a pretty solid looking list. It's uh, a mono blue deck that is attempting to leverage the synergies between the new newly printed card in Ixalan, Siren's Ruse. Uh, Siren's Ruse is a, a one in a blue instant that lets you exile a creature you control, returns it to the battlefield under its owner's control, and if you exile a pirate that way, you draw a card. And so together with uh, Siren's Ruse, you're trying to bounce um, one of these three different pirates from Mercadian Masks. There's uh, Rashadden Cutpurse, Rashadden Footpad, and Rashadden Brigand. Um, they are a 3-mana 1-1, one, one, a 4-mana 2-2, two, two, and a 5-mana 3-2 with flying, and they each have the ability that when they interplay, each opponent sacrifices a permanent unless he or she pays 1, 2, or 3, depending on the cost of the card. It goes up as the card gets more expensive. So the goal here is basically to put the squeeze on your opponent with something like a turn 1 or 2 chalice, or Trinosphere, and then start playing out your pirates and force them, if they're unable to pay, to start sacrificing permanents. Um, it's very likely in most cases that you'll end up sacrificing lands to these, especially once you've started bouncing them with Siren's Roost, and are flickering them, I should say. It adds up very quickly. And part of why I think this deck is really interesting compared to existing Stompy decks is that um, Stompy decks usually aren't in blue. So this deck gets access to four Force of Will, which is a huge plus in a format like Legacy with decks like uh, Charbelcher and Storm running around that are trying to combo kill you. Um, your ability to interact on their turn one before you've played, if they're on the play, is um, greatly increased when you have a free counter spell, obviously. And you also gain the ability to protect your own lock pieces, which some of these stompy decks don't necessarily always have. Um, it also gains access to Trune Nemesis in blue, which is an excellent beater because it's so hard to deal with. Um, and they also are playing, instead of like the big red list, which is playing three Chandra Torch of Defiance and three Cough of the Hammer, this deck is playing two Jace the Mind Sculptor. Um, Jace the Mind Sculptor is obviously a far superior Planeswalker to those red ones, um, so it's a huge plus. And the list is also playing Saprazen Scary, uh, probably a land a lot of you haven't heard of before. It is also from Mercadian Masks. It is a land that comes into play tapped with two depletion counters on it, and you may tap it and remove a depletion counter to add blue-blue to your mana pool. So it's an additional soul land for the deck that really helps you power out some of these um, more expensive pirates to start putting the squeeze on your opponent's permanents early. Um, and so all these pieces together gives you a, the kind of standard, hateful, stompy deck that has already seen a lot of success in the format, but always been kind of on you know the fringes as a kind of a tier one and a half deck. And you're adding some very potent blue cards to the mix, which I think might push this deck over the edge. So I'm really curious to see what the actual deck list that you know uh, eventually gets revealed. I don't know if we'll you know find out before Eternal Weekend or not, um, but I strongly suspect that it'll look something like this list here that i'm looking at right now so i'm really excited about that um i want to 
put it through, put it through some test runs, see how it performs. But just looking at the list, I think this is going to line up really well against what a lot of people are doing in the format right now. I would not have guessed that Pirates would end up being playable on Legacy. Yeah, I think a lot of people are excited. I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying, hey, you know, if uh, Pirate Stompy is a deck in Legacy, I might actually be interested in Legacy, which is, you know, as a Legacy aficionado, exactly what I want to be hearing. Um, I don't think this deck is, like, oppressively good. I think it looks solid, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, miserable to play against. So it'll be a, a, a good addition to the format. It'll be something cool to play against, and I hope it, I hope it attracts some people to the format that might not have um, been interested otherwise. Do you think this deck might be kind of like the flavor of the week, or do you think it's going to be around to stay? You know, I'm not sure. Um, the fact that some you know pretty well-known legacy players were obviously experimenting with the deck and, and pretty cagey about it um, leads me to believe that it's probably at least a solid deck. Um, they may have been hoping to you know catch Eternal Weekend off guard and just kind of metagame the format a little bit. I don't know if it's actually at, at the power level where it's you know uh just a straight up contender against the format regardless of you know what people are doing um especially since we don't actually have their exact 75 to know you know you know just what they're doing but um i think that it's also a little bit flavor of the week though just because people love pirates so i think the hype around the deck is definitely 100 like you're saying flavor of the week but i don't know if that necessarily means the deck will just vanish and disappear it might actually be a powerful enough deck to kind of hang in there and stick around for a while but i think the uh the interest around the deck right now is definitely like you were saying flavor of the week hype one thing to mention is uh i mean this list has only been public for a few hours so it'll be interesting to see you know what happens you know once the hive mind gets onto it um you know so this i don't know it's definitely exciting yeah some of the numbers in this list are a little questionable to me they're only running three wasteland together with two crucible of worlds uh, I I could kind of see four wasteland. Uh, I think if you're if you're in the market for wasteland, you probably want four. So um, it'd be interesting to see, yeah, what gets what, what gets tweaked as this deck kind of gets distilled down into a uh, uh, a most efficient form, right? I don't know how long people have been working on this, so um, I want I want to see how what the numbers look like on a refined version of this deck. Uh, moving away from legacy though um steven you have a modern rptq coming up in the near future here um you want to talk to us a little bit about how you've been preparing for that and uh maybe tell us how we can learn to play test a little bit better not just for rptqs but also for pptqs yeah so um as we mentioned before in our first week of recording i won a pptq and now I'm getting ready for my RPTQ. And I think at this point, now that the new set has come out, I'm going to be kind of just focusing my energy on intaking modern, uh, intaking modern data and kind of like analyzing what's important to me and what isn't important to me. Um, but one of the things that I find the most helpful when I'm preparing, not only for uh, uh, PPTQs, but just metas in general, is just uh, group playtesting. It's cool to like have FNM to to play test with, you know, people that you know, people that you want to be around, but also pick another day out of the week where a group of dedicated players can come and really focus on a deck that they're going to be playing or maybe even playing a deck that they will expect to be playing against. It's important to not only know your decks ins and outs, but also understand how the other deck works. I know that I've spent when the meta was basically just guy control, Jund, 
Tron and Affinity, I spent hours playing against Jund, but then I also built Jund myself to figure out how how Jund functions and what are the play choices that I'm given when playing against Affinity and figuring out how to really get around the deck and get under the deck um, and really understanding how the sideboarding goes and really understanding what cards to play first and it kind of shaped my decisions into how to play Affinity against Jund and figure out what cards do I throw into the bus or excuse me, what cards I throw under the bus first before I resolve the spells that I want to keep around. You know, if they have a red and a black mana up, it's it's very likely that they have a terminate in hand. So do I put my Master Theorem out first or do I play my Arcbound Avenger first? Which one to me is more important in that game and which one do I play into that those two mana? They can also have... You know, it could be very well that sometimes Jun just doesn't have anything. They just have a bunch of land, but the fact that they're holding up mana means you're not given you're not given enough information to really go ahead with your plan. So you kind of have to feel the waters by playing one thing, playing another thing that aren't very important to you, and then realizing, oh, they don't have answers. Okay, slam down all of my threats at the same time and see what happens. Usually they might have like one abrupt decay if they're not doing anything and then they get one thing and you're like, okay, that's fine. Uh, You mentioned sideboarding. Uh, I think sideboarding is uh, kind of um, overlooked by a lot of people. You know, a lot of people are showing up for, you know, something even like a PPTQ, uh, certainly for something like an FNM. And, um, you know, they're not 100% locked in on their sideboarding, right? Or, um, you know, they may like their sideboard, but they don't have a sideboard plan for every single matchup. And um, I think something that's super important for, for preparing for a higher level event like this is you really need to have your sideboard dialed in. You need to know exactly what you want in your sideboard. You need to know exactly how you're sideboarding in every matchup, or at least have a game plan that you can be flexible on, but you know what your, what your game plan is. And you need to know what the other deck is going to do against you. And that's something that a lot of people don't give enough consideration to, right? You're just talking about playing Jund to figure out how Jund sideboards for the matchup and really understanding it. I think that's something that a lot of people don't put the time and effort into that can give you a huge leg up over the competition. One thing I noticed uh, both of you were, were hitting on was you have to know both sides of the matchup. So in standard, if you're playing uh, ramming up red and your opponent is playing team or energy, when you go to sideboard, or even in game one, you have to think, all right, what are they doing? You know, because if all you're thinking is, all right, I'm going to play my one drop, you know, now I'm going to play my two drop, I'm going to hold up some burn so I can throw it at their face. If you're only thinking about what you're doing, then you're not going to be able to adapt to what they're doing. Uh, and so, especially when you go into sideboarding, if you're thinking, all right, so their game plan is, is this, and they're going to adapt that slightly and they're going to bring in some hate for me so then how can i go around that i mean that's you know steven you were saying what is the card that i want to sandbag what's the card i want in last um and i have a lot of while you were saying that suddenly it just kind of like oh i'm really good at the jund mirror i I like getting the jund mirror pairing or like the black green pairing and it's because you know what i've played both sides of that you know any mirror if you're playing the mirror you have played both sides of it you're playing it right then so you can really get to know, all right, what cards are actually important? Obviously, in the Jund Mirror, Thoughtseize is bad. Board it out. You have all these two drops. You have Tarmogoyf, Grimflayer, Scavenging News, Dark Confidant. 
what is the one that you want to survive? You know, people tend to sand. I've noticed a lot of times when I when I'm smashing the person, their last creature that they played was Tarmogoyf, and my last creature is Dark Confidant, so I'm drawing more cards than them, so I win. If you know, you have to figure out what can I throw out there. What's the most important card? Which card wins me the matchup? That's the one that you want to stick. You know, it's been said, and I'm, I forget who exactly said it, but the last fatty that doesn't die kills them. You know, and the last threat that doesn't die kills them. So you have to figure out what do they care about? What do I care about? How do I wield that against them? How do I make sure that my last threat or my mat or my last answer is effective against them? You know, if you're blue white. You throw out your spell snare, you throw out your mana leak, you keep your cryptic command, maybe that works out. If you keep your spell queller and you spend your cryptic command the turn before, then they cast Primeval Titan, you can't counter that with spell queller. So you have to really think, what matters in this game and how can I make sure that that doesn't happen or that my card does happen, if that makes sense. And uh, another thing, uh, to knowing both sides of the, of, of the matchup, um, because I have so many years of experience with affinity and playing against all the different kinds of hate in the format um i play cards that are sometimes i will so i feel like i play cards that are most more often than not seen by other players as just bad cards to play but i will tell you that if it wasn't for the one of illness in the ranks that i play in my sideboard i wouldn't have won that pptq why did you play that uh, because I was expecting to see Abzan. And guess what? Lingering Souls just beats Affinity. <laughs> uh, Lingering Souls dot deck just beats Affinity. You just can't do anything about it. <clears throat> they get to provide blockers while you while they set up their hand and they start moving your creatures, and then those creatures being blocked just trade with the Lingering Souls because most of your creatures aren't 2-2s. Two They're 1-1s one or 0-1s. Uh, uh, Ornithopter is a 0-2, so it... You know, it, it takes two Lingering Souls to kill it, but uh, more often than not, they're just going Lingering Souls. Okay, block your one thing. Cast Lingering Souls from my graveyard. Cast it from my hand. Now I have four tokens. And you just get overwhelmed by all these flyers that you can't do anything about. I, I think going back a few weeks before that PPTQ, um, I was playing against an Abzan player, and... It was the top eight, and it was very late, and I was tired. But I was, I was announcing. I was. It was my turn, and I was thinking about what every possible play was. But I was too tired to keep like contain it in my brain. So I started saying it out loud, and I started saying, "You have this much mana, and you have these many cards, and you haven't played this card and this card. So you must have abrupt decay." Lingering Souls and Seed Rhino in your hand. So next turn, I'm going to play this card, and you're going to play Lingering Souls. And sure enough, I played the card I I, I announced, and I pass the turn, and he goes, "Well, that was really good." And he plays a he plays a Lingering Souls out of his hand, and then I say, oh, "Like okay, like untap." I I draw a card, and I figure out what I'm going to do for the turn. I'm like, "All right, so I'm going to do this, and then you're going to play Seed Rhino, attack, and win." And like that was my only play at the time. So I I. I play my hand out, and he, sure enough, untaps, plays a Siege Rhino. So it's always just very important to to know what your opponent's going to be doing, I feel like. And when you're preparing for bigger bigger events, you just you should know what your opponent's going to do before they do it. Maybe not announce it to them, because, you know, 
You might yeah, be, don't announce it to them. But like, <laughs> he he probably was gonna do something else, and then you told him how to do it. Exactly. Yeah. He he probably could have misplayed, and and then he I would have won the game. But uh, you know, I was I was really tired, and I couldn't contain myself. So. So you um you do you like uh, illness in the ranks as your as your answer to stuff like lingering souls. Uh, why do you like it over uh, a card like Whip Flare, which has seen play in FND sideboards for a really long time? Is that a supplemental card? Or are you playing it in place of it? Uh, I think I think in my list, I'm definitely playing it in place of it. But the one thing for me is that uh, Whip Flare only answers what's on the board. Uh, Whip Flare doesn't answer a top deck. When Whip, Whip Flare doesn't answer, you know, a turn five. Oh, I forgot this is in my graveyard. I'm going to cast it. Uh, it only answers what's on the board. And if I go, okay, I'm going to kill four tokens, they just go, okay, I'm going to cast another one. Gotcha. So if you And I'm just like, all right, well, that was my only graveyard. That was my only hate card for for Lingering Souls, and now you have more Lingering Souls. So you feel the uh, the continuous effect is better than something like a Whip Flare, which could be potentially thought-seized before its relevant, or you know, might, it might clean up some Lingering Souls tokens now, but won't do it for the next batch down the line. Um, obviously, the trade-off there is that it's more vulnerable to something like an Abrupt Decay. Um I guess the trade-off there, though, is that there are so many things that they want to Abrupt Decay in the matchup that they just don't have enough Abrupt Decays to go around. Yeah, and and that's kind of my reasoning behind it also. It's it's not only just a continuous effect, but it's if they're going to spend a premium removal spell on Illness in the Rank, then they haven't spent a premium removal spell on anything else that matters on my board. Which, you know, could, you know, if they're going to die, I would assume they're going to kill what's going to kill them and not worry about the illness in the rank until, you know, turn 15 when they have stabilized the board and have control over the game. Um, But hopefully we're not at that point in the game where maybe they just need blockers and they go, okay, well, I need to spend my abrupt decay on illness in the ranks instead of cranial plating or instead of arcbound ravenger, which both of those cards can win me the game even if they have... Uh, two lingering souls in play. So I think all of that um, is is pretty universal. You know, things that can really be applied to any game of Magic, any tournament, whether it's you know F and M or or really even the Pro Tour. You know, but uh, more specifically for PPTQs, um, what I try to do when I'm trying to figure out the meta is I base it a lot on the winning metas from Grand Prix and Star City Games Opens. So day two. Uh, you know, in the top 32, top eight is relevant, but not, I think the top 32 is more relevant because sometimes it's tiebreakers or just one win. That's the difference between, you know, 32nd and winning the tournament. Um, so, you know, the decks that are showing up at the top of the standings of those large tournaments, those are going to show up at your local PPTQ as well. Um, but there's also a lot of considerations, um, People that play PPTQs generally don't have the same sort of deck selection that, you know, someone like Ari Lax or Tom Ross has. You know, the people that are, you know, the pros or just the people that are grinding Grand Prix in the open. Uh, so they're going to be focusing on the same few decks. Uh, they might have, you know, three decks, but maybe they only have one deck, but they probably don't have eight different decks they can show up with. So, you know, if the, you know, one of the best players in your meta is playing Death Shadow there's a good chance that's what he's going to be playing at the tournament, you know, at the PPTQ. Um, 
And so you can know, all right, I'm going to have to beat Death Shadow. I'm probably going to have to beat that guy if I want to win the tournament. Uh, so you have to factor that in. If there's a guy who's, you know what, for whatever reason, he always plays Kiki Chord, and that he does really well with it, you know, and he knows the deck, you might want to think, all right, well, how do I beat that guy? And just small considerations like that. I know in Sacramento, uh, John, you were saying there's a lot of scape shift right now. There's a lot of scape shift. So then you have to make sure, like, if you want to win a PBTQ, you need to beat scape shift. You probably can't win a PBTQ with Jund right now because Jund's probably not going to beat scape shift. So start with the with the large tournaments and then kind of tweak your focus for what you expect to be there based on your local meta. Um, which you can, you know, you can discover that by going to FNM or just, you know, after the first few PBTQs, you can see, all right, these good players are, are on these decks. Um, and then I know, John, you were saying you want to have a board plan for each deck. And I totally agree with that. You want to have a board plan. Um, but I am, I like to be very fluid in my boarding. Um, so I make sure, you know, I have a rough idea. Like if I'm playing against the stock list and they board the stock way, then these are my ins, these are my outs. But they're slightly different cards. You know, maybe they're playing a slightly different way, and so that you know can affect the last couple cards you take in and out. Um, but I think by working with your ins and outs and knowing what you plan to board in and out, you can build a better sideboard because you don't end up with like seven extra slots for affinity. You know, you have you can get the right amount so you don't have too many things to bring in or not enough. Yeah, the uh, the nice thing is, obviously, you know, you don't always stick just to the list. But the nice thing about having the list is you can sideboard according to the list very quickly. And then the rest of that time you would normally spend sideboarding, you can spend fine tuning. Um, you're, you're giving yourself um, maximum usage of your time to really kind of tweak your deck to what you're what they're doing like you just said so i think i think having things pre-planned not only gives you a better sideboard but it also lets you have more time available to dial things in that last little bit what do you think is different than between pptqs and rptqs um i think uh the the biggest difference between a pptq and an rptq aside from player skill probably being a uh, notably higher than rptq on average um is that an rptq is a winner's meta game um, like you were talking about before for looking at you know uh, day two results for SCG events and stuff like that for what you can expect to see at a PPTQ um, you want to look at what stuff's been winning PPTQs those are the decks you're going to face you're going to be playing as the winner's metagame so you're going to be facing on average a lot less fringe decks you're going to be facing the core of the metagame you're going to be facing very well tuned deck lists played by good players and you want to probably be doing less cute stuff if, if you have a proclivity to do anything cute in your boarding or main deck this might be the time to dial back on it unless you think it's going to give you a distinct advantage over the metagame as a whole and at that point i don't know if it's really something you could call cute i think that's just being better <laughs> <laughs> i agree with those points yeah i was pretty much going to say the same thing um i think when you're looking at an rptq you actually tend to have like a larger sample size of what decks are performing in the format that you're playing. Uh, so I think if you look at, you know, if you go to MTG Goldfish or uh, MTG Top 8 and they have the meta shares, uh, I think the PPT or RPTQs are going to be more like, it's going to be closer to that. You know, you're going to see the average tier of a deck will be higher, and that's to say that it'll be closer to one. Um, 
and obviously, as you said, the players will be better too. Um, and you did say don't be cute, right? Um, and I just I wanna I wanna play off that just a little bit. I think it's a good idea to you know I'm totally a net decker. You know I I find a deck I play it and I tweak it as I see. Um, but I don't think that for a RPTQ you actually want to have like a full 75 net deck because um, if you know if uh, if Sam Black posts the list that week and says hey you should play this. You can expect that the other players at the RPTQ have seen that list, have read his article, have they are familiar with it. So even if it's only a couple slots, you know, uh, it probably makes sense to you know change it up a little bit, try and tune it from that from that article or you know from the the high finish that you found. Try to tweak something to make it to give you some sort of advantage, uh, whether that's um, a different attacking a certain matchup from a different angle. Uh, that they're not going to expect or just something. But if you come in with the exact 75 um, of, a, of a known deck, then I think that gives your opponent an advantage because they know exactly what you're doing. Yeah, it's the danger of going completely in the opposite direction, right? Um, you don't want to be the, the the net deck unless the net deck is the you know, uh, tour de force in the format, the, the deck to beat. Maybe in that case, the deck's just so good that you don't want to reinvent the wheel, but generally speaking, yeah, you want to have, um, you want to have tweaked things a little bit, uh, against your expected metagame. Um, so yeah, you, you, you don't want to go too far in either direction. You want to, you want to have a, a healthy, a healthy medium. So Steven, since you're actually preparing for an RPTQ, what do you think? I think that you both, uh, touched on the topics that I would have, uh, talked about, but I also want to point out that if you are familiar with the deck and you feel very comfortable with the deck, you shouldn't change. You, I mean, I change accordingly. You know, if new cards come out, play those new cards if they're good in your deck, but don't feel like that because you're going into this tournament. Well, at least this is how I feel. Sorry. I feel like I shouldn't be changing my deck choice based on the meta i should be playing something that i'm comfortable with and something that i am very familiar with for this upcoming rptq that i'm going to be playing i'm either going to be playing affinity or junt because i know those two decks ins and outs and i know them so well that i don't want to be playing a new archetype that i don't have as much experience with that doesn't apply to everybody, but for people who maybe don't have a weekly access to multiple decks and they're very comfortable with only playing Tron or maybe only playing Grixis Death Shadow, maybe don't divert too far from that archetype. Yeah, there's, it's hard to replace all that accumulated experience of a deck, right? Um, obviously, if the deck is a terrible metagame choice, you should rethink your actions, but if your deck of choice is a reasonable selection for the metagame, you really need to weigh the the amount of time that you've spent becoming proficient with that deck against any any perceived um, increase in, in equity you would get from picking up an entirely new deck. Right? Um, it's it's a it's pretty tangible the the difference between a deck that you've just picked up recently versus a deck you've been playing for years. Um, you're just going to know the ins and outs of matchups so much better. You're going to know the the flow of the game, the the branches of decisions before they happen, rather than having to suss out 
you know, every turn on the fly. And that's going to save you a lot of brain power and make you a lot fresher going into the tournament than, than you would be if you were playing with a new deck. Yeah. I think you guys really hit on it. Um, knowing your deck is very crucial, especially in modern, uh, where there's so many other decks that, you know, knowing your deck just gives you a huge advantage um, because you can adapt to all the things you're seeing, all the things that are being thrown at you. Um, and it's even like you said, you're playing, you know, deck A or deck B. So given that, you know, you do have a metagame choice, those decks, you know, Affinity and Jund, it, it is rare that neither of them is playable. It is rare that neither of them is well positioned. You know, they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and so I think that gives you a good balance. And so, you know, you know them both, and that gives you a huge percentage in every matchup because you know what to do, you know what to expect. And then when it actually comes to the week of, you can look and see, all right, what's going on in the meta? What's actually winning right now? And then based on that, pick your deck. Because I'm, you know, I'm sure that if, uh, if every deck was playing uh, main deck Karanos, um, you know, and Geist of St. Traft, maybe you don't want to play Jund. But if every deck is playing uh, four main deck Anger the Gods, you know, you're not going to play Affinity. So, you know, there's, and, and those are both extreme examples. Hopefully that is never the modern format we live in. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, we, we're in a format where they're playing anger the gods together with uh scape shift so that's true yeah that is true deck choices and preparation set aside i think the one thing that's led to top eighting so many pptqs for me has been two factors sleep and food i don't think without having a good night's rest beforehand before the tournament and not getting enough food before the tournament and during the tournament i don't i, I just don't win those tournaments uh, there have been tournaments where I play hungry because I have something before round one, but I don't have enough time to eat in between rounds. And I don't win those games because I'm not as focused on the game as I should be. Um, I will say that there are tournaments where I play 10 minutes a round and I get to go have food and I get to go take a break and relax in between each round. And I do much better during those tournaments than I do at tournaments where I don't have as much time to get food. But I mean, enough about all this preparation stuff. I'm sure that if you have won your local PPTU, you are diligently planning. And I hope that our tips will be able to help you get the leg up on your opponents. And if you haven't yet, then I hope that these tips will help you uh, win your next PPTQ. But moving on from this stuff, uh, let's move into our next topic, which is... Uh, there's been some uh, policy changes uh, to the release of Ixalan, as well as some changes to the comprehensive rules. Uh, two parts that we kind of want to hit on real quick that are relevant to a lot of people are um, that, first off, they have made a change to uh, the rules for reminding your opponent about optional choices um from now on in a comp Ariel environment when you cast a spell with a may effect attached to it something along the lines of a path to exile or a ghost quarter where it says that your opponent may choose to fetch out a basic land as part of the spell's resolution um if they do not go get a land um as you know uh people do they just grab their deck and go for it if they don't give any indication that they have acknowledged this part of the card's resolution you are now obligated to confirm with them whether they are choosing to not uh 
to not go get that beneficial effect. Also being changed are the comprehensive rules regarding replacement effects. So from now on, when a card enters the battlefield with a replacement effect applied, rather than entering and then having it applied like in the past, um, it is now going to enter with it applied. So for example, in the past, if a Blood Moon in play, you play a Shockland, you still have to choose to pay the two mana to or the two life to have it enter play untapped, and then it enters play as a mountain, whether tapped or untapped as you choose. Now it will enter the battlefield with that replacement effect already applied. It will enter the battlefield as a mountain, and it'll just enter untapped like mountains always do. Um, this also changes how um, Dark Depths enters the battlefield. Now it will enter without any ice counters as a mountain. Previously, it would enter as a mountain that had ice counters on it. Um, and stuff like humility um, will now affect, uh, like for example, modular creatures will enter the battlefield uh, as one ones of no abilities. They will not have modular counters. So um, a lot of little tiny effects there um, worth looking at if you tend to play any cards that have replacement effects, um, just to make sure you understand how they are interacting with cards from now on. So I think we've learned a lot this week. Number one, never underestimate the power of a sandwich. Number two, never underestimate the power of Wizards of the Coast to make changes that may or may not affect anything. And number three, never underestimate the power of that 75th card in your deck. Slot of the Week is a segment where we talk about what card we're fitting into our 75 this week. Steven, what card are you fitting into your 75? In my 75, I plan on playing a new card that just was printed. It is Shaper's Sanctuary. It's one green mana enchantment. It says whenever a creature you control becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, you may draw a card. Uh, this card, I feel like, has a very strong potential in Affinity. It's, I know that that's... I know that that has been said about many different cards over Affinity's lifespan, and we've seen cards like Insole Artifact make it into main board Affinity that, you know, kind of loses favor because you realize you're getting two for one very frequently. But I feel like this card could replace Thoughtcast in the deck to where you play this turn one and every creature that gets removed, and they do have to be removed because everybody's game plan against Affinity is to remove their creatures this will just net you more cards than Thoughtcast will over the course of the game. Now, I'm not sure how I'm going to play this card in my 75. I'm not sure, do I cut Mass for Ethereum to play something green, or do I just play four etched champions to maximize the amount of creatures that can't be can't be targeted, so they're targeting other creatures the whole game, trying to remove my etched champion. I'm not really sure. But I do think that I'm going to be trying it out as a four of initially in the deck just to see how often I can draw it and how often it is relevant and then cut down to a reasonable number from that uh, from that playtesting and all that, you know, quote unquote data that I'm going to pick up. What about you, John? Uh, my start of the week is a old card um, that I'm not actually going to be playing at a, at a competitive event uh this week but i've been practicing a lot um in my own time at home i've been gold fishing a lot with legacy high tide um it was i was reminded of the fact that this deck exists again a couple days ago 
I haven't seen it in a while. I used to watch the SCG Sunday Legacy coverage every Sunday for a long time until they got rid of it, and I really liked watching it. And uh, there was a player named Feline Longmore who played this deck, and she was really good with it. Um, she was super fast with this combo deck that is often quite slow to go off, and I've been wanting to kind of dip my toe into playing a combo deck for a while in Legacy. Um, and I've also been wanting to practice my cantripping. Um, I've been wanting to get more proficient at brainstorming, pondering quickly. I think I do a, an okay job of actually choosing cards, but I'm, I'm usually quite slow. And so I wanted to improve the speed at which I made my decisions. And uh, I feel like playing this um, high tide deck, which is extremely reliant on um, the, the sheer amount of cantrips that it plays, but uh, also in resolving them in a timely manner, um, that I think it'll be really good practice for me. And the deck is also really easy to goldfish. Um, you uh, you can kind of pretend your opponent has interaction quite easily by just kind of pretending that you have to counter something every time you time spiral. Um, so my solo of the week is time spiral. Um, I've been casting a lot of time spirals by myself uh, and uh, and untapping six lands and drawing new hands, which is pretty sweet. How about you, Zach? So I considered... Uh, a, a few cards for this week. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted. Um, I almost decided to adopt two cards because um, I had a couple of options. Um, and I was trying to figure out which card was optimal. And so ultimately, I have opted for Thalia, Guardian of Thraben. Uh, and the reason for that is because I think that the number of cantrips people are playing in modern is going to go up. Um, as well as the just number of cheap spells, even with cards like Fatal Push. Um, you know, making that cost two is really good. Um, and I think Storm is a, a big player right now, so I think um, Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, is well-positioned. Um, and that is my slot of the week. All right, that's the cast. Steven reeled it in. Thank you guys for checking us out and sticking around to the very end. Uh, if you're wondering where you can check out more content, please head over to mtgconflex.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter under the same name, mtgconflex with no space. And if you have any suggestions or comments that you'd like us to read, please feel free to email us at themtgconflex at gmail.com. Again, we really do appreciate you sticking around to the very end, and we hope you join us in the next one. Bye.